Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. This week's guest is David Orr. David's a professor in environmental studies and politics at Oberlin College Emeritus. He's also one of the founding fathers of the original environmentalist movement. And it was just so amazing to speak with him. David is so well read and has so many incredible ideas about how things converge and impact one another. Uh, He explains in this episode why the environmental movement in the 80s failed because it wasn't political. Uh, what politics has to play at this time uh, when dealing with ecological crises, how we can save democracy and why democracy must be saved if we're going to combat this crisis, and the role of education through all of that. How do we teach people, A, what's going on with the planet, and B, how to be better citizens? This is a fascinating conversation. I mean, I just felt like I was in the best sort of private lecture of all time. David's stories and his wealth of knowledge is so inspiring. Um, and the fact that also he was so open to engage in the, the you know, the ideas that I tried to bring. Um, it really was such a marvelous conversation. I loved it. And I'm sure you all will too. So if you do enjoy the episode, share it far and wide. This is the kind of information that needs to be out there right now, how to update our education system, how to organize people on the ground so they can fulfill short-term strategies that are necessary at this moment where we're also trying to implement long-term strategies on how to combat the crisis, which ultimately, I mean, any conversation about dealing with politics and updating your political system, that's that's a long-term strategy. If you love the episode, please do consider taking out a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to support the podcast, or you can also support it on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash planetcritical. The transcripts of each interview are now available for Planet Critical patrons and paid subscribers. And a huge thank you to everyone who's already supporting the project. John Stuart Mill in uh, 1848. Uh, wrote a book on uh, economics, a textbook, and he mentions the steady-state economy. And that was the first mention of it, I think, among, quote, professional economists or or thinking people at that time, not professional economists. Um, And then in in the the, uh, later, later, Nicholas Georgescu Rogan, who was a professor of economics at Vanderbilt, I think he was Romanian by birth, but Georgescu Rogan wrote a book uh, called the entropy law, uh, and the uh, I'm blanking on the title. It was uh, uh, anyway the, the entropy law in economics or something like that. But he, what he did was to ground uh, economics in in physics hmm. and the whole entropic process. So you t- you think of a pipeline, and the pipeline you know wells, mines, forests, farms, all the way over to dumps and atmosphere and so forth. And that pipeline is the economic throughput. So it, it's everything that comes through the pipe, all the materials and so forth. And what Georgescu Rogan did in this very complicated book, it's still in print from uh, Harvard University Press, uh, was to ground this in a lot of mathematics and physics. And so 
the laws of entropy say that what goes in has to come out. Mm -hmm. So all that stuff comes in is going to eventually come out as waste or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, and sometimes it's slower, like a Stradivarius violin will be more slowly disintegrating in that pipeline, but eventually it all ends up as dust and waste or heat. Mm -hmm. And then the, uh, the other law was it only goes in one direction. Right. It goes from ordered matter to disordered matter, or we called it entropy. And uh, Herman Daly was a graduate student of his, and Herman Daly wrote uh, a book, uh, an edited book in 1972, I think it was, on uh, the steady state economy. And then later in the late 70s, he published a, uh, a book under that title. And then ever since then, just a flood of material coming out from Daly and other, other people. But there's environmental economics, uh, which is a kind of a, a more polite, housebroken version of economics. And then there's ecological economics, which is all about a different house. I mean, mm -hmm. these are orders of magnitude different. The uh, environmental economists uh, believe that you can make uh, some adjustments with prices and so forth, and you can, uh, a smarter economy can be made to work within an entropic uh, universe. And ecological economists, on the other hand, don't believe that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a chasm between these two versions. It's not a gradient. It, it really is a, a chasm. Mm -hmm. And uh, Kate Rayworth's work, I think, fits in that tradition. She's a lovely writer, a uh, very nice person, and you'd, you'd enjoy a conversation with her. I don't know her well, but I've met her a couple of times and uh, am a fan of hers. But she, she's made it, she's updated Daly's work to um, uh, contemporary times. Mm -hmm. Put it in the language. I think it's a lot easier for people to uh, comprehend. Mm -hmm. All right, ask me something uh, easy question here. Yes, <laughs> yes, no works for me real, real well. <laughs> well, I was trying to think about you know, God, what what should we speak about, uh, given everything that that you've written about, and um, something that drew my eye in in reading. Uh, some of your pieces, especially on resilience.org, it was about um, the process of democracy and the kind of requisite evolutions that statehood needs to go through in order to best combat the the crises that we find ourselves in. Um, and I've not really had anybody on the show speak about that. Well, I'll be, I'll be happy to. And we've got four or five hours for me to talk, right? So that's... <laughs> I started in, uh, in this whole area. Um, I was a grad student at University of Pennsylvania back in the, the uh, early 1970s. And I was in, in political science. Uh, that's what my PhD is in. Mm. And, but I began taking courses around the university. I had some extra time, and so I would take courses. And so I took a course with, uh, or sat in on a course with the great landscape architect, uh, Ian McHarg, who was also a Scotsman and uh, quite a legendary character. And he and I later taught, a team taught a course at Ball State University after he had retired from uh, Penn and uh, also later from Harvard. And uh, it set me on a very different path. Uh, when I lived in Atlanta, I worked for, uh, as an unpaid consultant, to Jimmy Carter, who was governor at the time. He and I were both members of the, the board of something called the uh, Georgia Conservancy. Mm -hmm. And Carter, Carter's problems were with the Georgia legislature and so forth were fundamentally political. And it got me thinking that uh, we needed to see environment through a political lens. The cork in the bottle, so to speak, was what happened in legislatures, governor's offices, regulatory agencies, prime minister's offices, uh, 
courts and so forth. It, it's basically political. Mm-hmm. And the environmental movement, uh, I went off and did other things. I went and taught at the University of North Carolina for a time and, and then started a nonprofit organization, which uh, a brother and I bought 1,500 acres out in the Arkansas Ozarks, kind of a wild hare. After nine years in the academy, I thought, hey, it's time to actually go do something. Mm-hmm. So we bought nine, uh, 1,500 acres, which is a lot of ground. That's uh, what, roughly 1,000 hectares or whatever. No, wait, two words, two over seven. Yeah, well, it'd be maybe 800 hectares or whatever. Um, so within that space, we ran, we had a sawmill, uh, we ran a cattle operation. I'd never done these things before. <laughs> uh, we had a cattle operation, organic cattle operation, a sawmill a construction company, and we built conference facilities, a hotel and a commercial restaurant and had uh, uh, a steady stream of events we, we had planned. We did the first conference for bankers and climate scientists with Bill Clinton, who was oh. and the governor of Arkansas. He and Hillary would come up and spend weekends with us. And um, the first conference for New York Foundations on Sustainability, we hosted that. So we did a whole variety of, of things. It became a, kind of the go-to place on sustainability in the in the 80s. I left there in 1990 to come to Oberlin. But back on topic, um, the, the issues, we, we, the environmental movement has made a fundamental mistake in thinking that uh, if we just get the ideas right hmm. and know the science right, and we write great books and great articles, it'll all work out because people are basically rational and they'll come around and they'll see the truth and we'll present the truth to them. Well, the truth is it, that doesn't work that way. I mean, we're fundamentally not very rational. One of your countrymen, David Hume, pointed out a long time ago. Uh, that emotions rule reason. Mm-hmm. And then we, you, you know, reason scrambles around to find the reasons that fit the emotions that we have. And so the, the political element, we had, we had ignored that in the belief that humans were, were rational. I don't know if I sent you the, the article I did on that, but uh, no. a couple of years ago, I wrote an article. Let me make a note here. Stan, Rachel, stuff. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> stuff is a big category. This is going to be a big file, Rachel. Excellent. But I think that we we made an assumption that we didn't need to be political, right? That we could avoid those kind of things. And so, after the election of uh, 2016, here, the, the last thing I did before retiring from Oberlin College, um, I've been here for 27 years, and I'm I'm now a, a professor of practice at Arizona State University. But the last thing uh, we did or I did here was organize a conference on the state of American democracy. We had, oh, headline people for three days. And we were trying to understand how we got to the election of 2016. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's a long answer. I mean, it, it, it's embedded in our history, uh, the U.S. Constitution, racism. You know, there's a long mm-hmm. story there. It wasn't just Donald Trump. He was kind mm-hmm. of the, the upshot of it all. Yeah. And then after, after that event, uh, three-day event, uh, uh, do you, it, does the name William Barber ring a bell with you at all? Not really. Uh, he's an African-American minister here. He's probably the best speaker, uh, the best orator in the United States right now. Uh, his poverty, he's a, a based in North Carolina, but he's a preacher by profession. Mm-hmm. And uh, he closed out the event. Uh, it was like an exclamation mark at the end of a long sentence. Mm. Very powerful speaker. Um the um, the next step of the work we we planned to do a, uh, a book pull all the pieces together so we organized a book that had uh, 
over 39 authors uh, it came out. It's called Democracy Unchained. And that came out in 2020. We plan to follow that with uh, 14 events across the country, starting at the National Cathedral mm -hmm. uh, in uh, Washington. And the cathedral staff, um, in our weekly conversations with them, two weeks before the event, uh, of March 20, said, hey, we've got good news, we've got bad news. The good news is we're going to have a full cathedral with uh, the main nave filled and both wings filled, uh, uh, standing room only crowd. Uh, the bad news is we're going to have to cancel. <laughs> yeah. Because of COVID. Yeah. So uh, we uh, we made the pivot. It did something uh, I'm terrible at, but we went to online events. We hired a commercial company and uh, went to online events. Did 11 of them with... Uh, 98 participants, including David Brooks, New York Times, and uh, folks from uh, all across the spectrum, uh, James Clyburn from Congress and so forth. We drew an audience of around a million viewers for those 11 uh, uh, episodes. And then the question at the end of that was, which was uh, uh, at the end of uh, 2020 or early 2021, what, what do we do now? And so the effort going forward is to pull together a group of universities, colleges, and other organizations around the theme of repairing democracy. And, and our assumptions are very simple, that um, climate change is a mortal threat. I mean, we don't have a lot of time. Time's not our friend here. Mm -hmm. And secondly, climate change and the implosion of democratic institutions here and in the UK and Europe and so forth in Eastern Europe uh, is, is a major problem. But these two things are linked that you really can't fix the climate until you first fix how we make decisions as a society, which in democratic societies means fixing democracy. Mm -hmm. So that became part of the, uh, the mission going forward. So uh, Arizona State University, where I am uh, not physically located, but a professor there, uh, that's one of our anchor uh, institutions. And then there's a cluster in, uh, in and around Denver, Colorado, that includes Denver University and uh, University of Colorado, Colorado State, uh, Colorado School of Mines. There is a, um, and then also, also the Alliance Center, nonprofit organizations. There is a uh, third cluster forming around natural history museums, which turns out have more visitors in the course of a uh, year than professional sports has. Oh, really? And they were, were talking to people in Pittsburgh and New York and Washington and Los Angeles about the joining in some form or fashion, but to create uh, what the Irish would call a fierce commotion. Mm -hmm. Let's start talking about democracy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, without getting into the weeds on this, but one of the things I, I would like to see is no student graduates from any college or university without uh, a background in civics, understanding uh, why democracy is important and, and what it means and so forth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And no student graduates uh, without understanding how the earth works as a physical system, understand mm -hmm. the basic science behind climate change and species extinction and, and so forth. And the, the relationship between these two uh, is, I think, intimate and reciprocal. They're flip sides of the same coin. Uh, and we don't have much time to repair democracy as we're learning in the United States uh, and worldwide for that matter. Uh, and we don't have any time at all really to repair uh, the climate. And uh, so what we have to do, we're, we're looking at a world that is dramatically changing before our eyes. So according to the International Energy Agency, uh, the temperature by the end of the century would be something like uh, 2.7 degrees centigrade warmer. Mm. 
and it could be a lot more than that. Uh, positive feedback loops, and you, you've heard all this before, but uh, methane in, in the boreal forest area could kick it up uh, very quickly, and methane's a more potent greenhouse gas, shorter life, yeah. atmosphere, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, this is serious stuff. You wouldn't, and I wouldn't, get into a car with the odds of catastrophe if we knew that there was a odds of a fatal crash that were roughly at say 50, 50 or one in three, we wouldn't get in that car. Yeah. But we haven't been on a planet where those are the odds of making it through this gauntlet yeah. safely. So that's the, uh, I don't know where you want to go with that, but that, that's, that's what I do now. We're organizing this effort and trying to engage citizens and so forth. And there's nothing about education that is quick. I mean, this is not quick yeah. fix. This is, um, beginning to pair suit, but we're also looking at, also asking universities to look at the full range of everything that they do from recruitment students all the way out to alumni associations. Mm-hmm. Arizona State, for example, has uh, well over a million alums out there. And Bill McKibben, um, who's a friend and one of our co-authors in uh, Democracy Unchained, Bill is trying to organize older people in what's called uh, the third act. And so late in life, in other words, what do you want to do? What's your legacy? I'm trying to organize alums. So if you can get, say, 5% of 1.2 million alums from one institution, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And these are people who have been around the block a time or two, have money and assets and experience. So the effort here is to begin to look at everything the universities do. And then also, just as a footnote to that, uh, all universities and colleges have career planning yeah. Uh, offices is where they help kids make the, the leap from, you know, graduation to successful employment. But as temperature goes up, <clears throat> those uh, careers and those lives are going to be radically altered. Yeah. Our basic baseline assumption is you can raise the thermostat of the planet and nothing else wobbles. And that's just not the way it's going to be. And so careers are going to change dramatically, both for good and for bad. Uh, I've got a grandson in the Air Force uh, Special Forces Unit. Um, they're the kind of equivalent of the Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and so forth. Uh, some of those skills are going to be very useful in a rapidly uh, changing world. And first responders are going to need to know a whole lot of things that we typically teach in uh, military academies and military training. Well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, the practice of law needs to change. Uh, law needs to begin to have a longer time horizon. We need to in the case of uh, U.S. law, the, fourth, the 14th and the Fifth Amendments to the Constitution uh, talk about due process of law, and yet future generations are not covered by any process of due process, or they're mm-hmm. inter- not considered. Mm-hmm. So in legal terms, you need to give them standing. Mm-hmm. So I'm going on and on, and you, you keep nodding your head, which only encourages me to blab more. Uh, well, there's two questions that come to mind, and the second is just slightly more interesting. I mean, I suppose I, I love what you're saying because I think um, that we have fundamental flaws in, in education. I think that everything is political, and you can't talk about changing um, politics without teaching people, especially young people, how to think critically. Yeah. Um, but the thing that comes to mind when you're speaking is that these um, everything that you that you're implementing these fantastic ideas it is going to take time to see the results of those and as you say we're running out of time and it is of course it's a huge problem it's a long-term problem that's rushing at us with exponential speed but what is it 
What are the short term things that also need to happen democratically or politically or in education in the next decade to work with the longer strategies that are going to create, you know, ultimately a better human society? But I mean, right now, there's also the crisis that we need to deal with ASAP. You bet. Well, it's a great question. And I think it's one that needs to be asked all the time by, by everybody. Hmm. What we're saying to each of the, uh, these quote hubs is what's happening in your area. So for example, our, our launch event in, uh, in Tempe, Arizona, uh, Arizona state, uh, in April will include a talk by Al Gore. We've invited, uh, our Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, from <laughs> really? left and right. Uh, Schwarzenegger is a great governor. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. climate stuff, he, he really gets it. Yeah. And he's very, uh, uh, we had him here for our, uh, 2017 event or 2016 event, I've forgotten. Uh, great speaker, wonderful uh, on these issues. So we're asking each of the hubs to tell us what you think needs to be done right now. Case of Arizona, they've got a critical issue of voting. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Denver hub, the the uh, event we're planning there, and this is still aspirational, but we've got the money to do it. It's question of organizing. Uh, the, the big event, the big problem there is violence in politics. Uh, Janet Griswold, the Secretary of State in uh, Denver, New York, Colorado, gets regular death threats. Jonah Goose, the congressperson, gets regular death threats. He and his wife had to go into the uh, kind of the political equivalent of the witness protection program with an anonymous address and an anonymous unlisted phone number and all that. So uh, the, the big issue is, you know, if you, what we're talking about, you're talking about this side of the chasm, and you're, it was a great question. And you can't get to here until you fix here. So the bridge you have to build across this politically starts on this side of the chasm. And that's, yeah. that's the point of your question. But think of what a university could do. Uh, they can convene right now. You, you can bring people like Janet Griswold, put her on a stage and let her talk, you know, make her case publicly. You could put that out on podcasts. In the case of Arizona, they have a huge uh, communications network for all colleges and universities do. So we're talking about creating a very large megaphone that links up all of these institutions around uh, common technology. So whatever happens, let's say in, in Pittsburgh, is going to go out through this network. So th that's one thing. Secondly, uh, people like uh, Ezra Levin at uh, uh, Indivisible need to recruit young people. And typically young people coming out of college and university want to know, what, what am I going to do with my life? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this... Uh, uh, Mary Oliver called it just one crazy wild life I've got. What, what, do I, what do I do with it? Well, you can sit in the office and shuffle paper or you can get out and make the world different. And most kids coming out of college really do want to make a difference. So the question is, how do they do it? And introducing them to, we have a list of some 600 organizations across the U.S. And I'll leave Europe aside for the moment, across the U.S. that are in the trenches, voting rights, gerrymandering issues. And so that's the immediate, it's right now. Uh, but the issues of violence, uh, we, we've got to learn why democracy is important, why it's worth defending, why people have an inalienable right to govern, say who they're governed by and how and to what purpose. And yeah. that's something we fought, uh, you know, as humans uh, for oh, uh, centuries or at least a couple of maybe millennia going back uh, to Greek history yeah. to establish that people have a right. And those rights are uh, inalienable. And now we've got Putin and Trump and a bunch of authoritarians trying to undermine it. Do you think that there's a tendency to slip back into authoritarianism because people don't quite know how to confront 
the severity of the crisis because it is so complex and it is so frightening. There's this element of like, you know, I'm sure Freud wrote something about, you know, climbing back into the womb or whatever it is. Yeah. You know? Well, I think it's a great question. And and I I think that we have to, we have to begin to reckon with uh, this darker side of the human personality. Hmm. Uh, There were not all these rational creatures made in the image of God. That just, that's just bullshit. Uh, we're highly irrational and irrational struggles, the frontal lobe struggles with the old reptilian brainstem. Yeah. And the problem we have is it is so easy to uh, go on television or a website or whatever and incite that reptilian brainstem. That's where fear and hatred and ignorance lurk. And we become very tribal and closed in. If you talk about Oh, these people that are different than us, these Scottish people want to take over America. We have to do something about that. Uh, that's easy. Uh, they often wear funny little skirts and, you know, they're totally irrational and they drink Scotch whiskey and they play funny music, you know, and we've got to mm-hmm. stop that. That's an easy thing to do. The harder thing is how do you reach out and in the word sustainability, that's heavy lifting. You got to yeah. think about a lot of stuff. You're into philosophy and politics and, and all kinds of other things, but that's that's heavy lifting. Uh, talk about justice, my goodness, what, what's justice? Well, that's yeah. that's heavy lifting. But fear, hatred, those are easy. You could hit the amygdala, the reptilian brain, and boom, you're right there. And yeah. you short circuit thought. And I think the role of education, both um, in classroom education and in this wider sense, of uh, educating the public. Who do you convene? What are the events you do? What do you put on your websites? How do you counsel young people about careers and lives? What do you do with your alums? How do you spend your money? I mean, uh, colleges and universities have a lot of influence they're not using to good good purpose right now, or as good as it could be. But um, I, th- I think ultimately this is going to be, the weak link in our prospects is what's between our ears. Mm-hmm. It's how we think. And how poorly we think about some of these things. So the role of education is, I think, broadly to uh, encourage us to think more profoundly and more deeply. Mm-hmm. Now, the difficulty, I think uh, one of Freud's nephews came to the United States and started the first uh, advertising agency here. And armed with Freudian psychology, uh, his name was, I've got a couple of his books over here, uh, Excuse me, I'm going to lean over the computer. I want out. This is Edward Bernays' book. Right. Bernays was a nephew of Sigmund Freud. He arrives in the United States armed with Uncle Sigmund's ideas of human psychology. And he starts the first advertising agency. So what he does is really quite ingenious. Uh, he understands that you, you don't appeal to the frontal lobe. You want to sell something. You, you don't sell the rational, numerical kind of things. I mean, this is, again, David Hume's comments. Uh, you don't appeal to the superego. Oh, you got to be good. You gotta, you know, you, you'll love your neighbor. All kinds of, no, no, no. <laughs> you appeal to the id. Yeah. And so his advertising was uh, based as all advertising is based on the it, the impulse. And so in selling cars, he knew that if you want to sell cars to uh, old guys like me, uh, you make them symbols of potency. 
you put a lot of chrome on it and you make it powerful and you make it very seductive. And the design is all this. And then the advertisements, you always have a uh, seductive woman draped across the car and so forth. And that sells, you know, that, what that hits is the amygdala. Uh -huh. Uh, to sell cigarettes, he was hired by the cigarette industry and he organized an event down fifth Avenue. He got a bunch of debutantes, young, attractive women, uh, marching down the, uh, street. And he had all the cameras and all the news media there at the end. And then when he got to their designated point, they pulled up their skirt, pulled out a cigarette from a garter belt, lit it up. And what goes out on the advertising is little torches of freedom. Now, what did he hit? He hit the amygdala, the resentment against men. No. So, aha, you want to be free of this brute that's tyrannized your life. You smoke the cigarette. And that was the other half of the market. Women didn't smoke. So that was uh, Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays. And uh, he determined, uh, not, not the whole thing, he, he influenced the start of advertising. So our generation is the third or fourth generation when you want to start counting that's been subject to this massive effort to shift human psychology to make us not citizens, but dependable consumers Yeah, that are uh, subject to our whims and our fantasies and all that. That's advertising. Television comes along and uh, it heightens this and something like, and I've forgotten the exact percentage, but something like 70 or 80% our sensory apparatus is connected to our eyes. And so we see it, we believe it. And so, uh, what, what we see tyrannizes our thought process. So television comes along and television is very good at doing this. And so you look, watch, watch television advertising. Everything happens just like this, mm. because you know that you can't look at something for long periods of time. Boredom kicks in. So the right. way the eyes formed in, in forest environments, maybe for our previous, yeah, our primitive ancestors. In forest environment, you're walking through the forest, you have to be alert to a slight change here and yeah. there. That could be a leopard, this could be a snake, this could be. So uh, television uh, learned to use that. So there, there's this, what I'm, I, what I'm saying is there's this confluence of factors that have rendered more difficult to be a thoughtful, caring citizen. In American history, there was, it stopped me if, if you wanna go off in a different direction or you want me to quit. Yeah. In American history, there was, uh, in 1858, Abraham Lincoln was running against Stephen Douglas for a Senate seat from Illinois. And they had uh, seven or eight debates around the, the state. Douglas eventually won the seat, but uh, Lincoln won the presidency two years later. When you go back and look at the transcripts of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, here were two titanically smart people, uh, eloquent, and they were debating the big issues of the day centered around slavery and to a lesser extent, tariffs and so forth. But slavery was the heart of it. And Lincoln had said previously that uh, if slavery is not wrong, nothing's wrong. To mm -hmm. encumber humans, to enchain humans was uh, fundamentally wrong. Uh, Douglas argued that that may be true, but it was a state issue. So uh, if you take the, take the searchlight off those two guys on the podium at these little towns around Illinois, and reverse it and look at the audience. Hundreds or thousands of people standing, no air conditioning, no indoor comfortable auditorium seats, uh, no microphones, and they were cheering. If you look at the full transcript, you can tell when they, they cheered, they jeered, they laughed, they clapped, they did. Those were citizens. Yeah. 
And those were people who engaged the public process and were patient. They, they didn't get sound bites. They were getting full speeches. Yeah. It harks back to ancient Greece when all the public debates were made out in, in the market. It was, yeah. you know, there was no ivory tower of education. Yeah, okay, not everybody was chosen to go and yeah. be educated, but they would have these debates in public. But then that leads me on to ask, um, because I think a huge part of the problem is we label um, in the West our institutions as democratic and our system as democratic. And yet, unless, um, ugh, unless you're in the kind of uh, position and have a level of education which enables you to keep a very close eye on every debate that's happening in government. Uh, democracy kind of falls by the wayside the minute that you cast your vote. But bringing that idea back to education and mm -hmm. advertisement, I mean, as long as education, especially higher education, is commodified, mm -hmm. especially in the United States, can it be democratic in this way? Because the forums that you're talking about, whilst I think they're fantastic, and technology would enable to, as you say, have millions of, of visitors and viewers around the world. Yeah. There yeah. is still this barrier um, of capital and access. Um, and also, I mean, class hugely, you know, don't we have to kind of take that apart as well? Yeah, that, that's a great question. In our assumptions in this work, one is that climate change is existential. It's related to democracy. You got to repair democracy, but the core of the repair work is to reinvent democracy. To hmm. so call the Greek, what happened in Greek agora, uh, say democracy 1.0, it really wasn't because it goes back before that, but that's another issue. But Greek democracy 1.0, and maybe what happened in Philadelphia and the US Constitution, democracy 2.0, leave out the New Deal and Civil War and so forth. We're talking about democracy 3.0 hmm. or 4.0, whatever you want, but this is a reinvention of it. And it, it's, a, it, it's a democracy that is calibrated to be safe on a planet with a biosphere. So that means uh, in terms of education, people have to know something. They, they cannot be illiterate. Uh, they cannot be ignoramuses. They have to know how the earth works physically. They have to be dedicated to the proposition that uh, democracy works. Uh, democracy is important with saving. It's how we protect our dignity and so forth. Uh, so that, that's the start. That's one answer. This is not a, just a patch job on what is already failing. Hmm. And it means you, you have to get money out of it. You have to make uh, the same separation between money and politics that we allegedly make between religion and politics. Yeah. You cannot bring <laughs> elections. We pay for it one way or another. So why don't we uh, pay up front? Uh, let's just publicly pay for elections. And that, that would apply uh, everywhere where democracy is practiced. And you get you got into an interesting point. Let me circle back. Democracy has a certain structure. One of the chapters in the book we've got coming out is on urban design and democracy. So if you want to make it possible to have democratic, not, not determined that it's going to be a democracy, but if you want to make it possible, you're going to build cities more like Copenhagen than Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You're going to be walkable. You're going to have uh, local gardens, rooftop this, and solar collectors and community-owned utilities and so forth. But you're, you're beginning to design democracy uh, in that ecological design sense of making things available for people and giving them ownership at the very bottom. So let me detour briefly into political mm -hmm. theory. Just one, one guy, John Dewey, a famous American philosopher who wrote incomprehensible prose. I don't recommend reading him, but it, what he wrote was important, uh, but it's torturesome. <laughs> he said the local community is the school for democracy. It begins, you, you begin it oh. very early on. And 
I'm on the board of something called uh, the Children of Nature Network, great organization started by one of the real American heroes, Richard Liu, L-O-U-V, um, getting kids out in nature. So you have these two things going on. One is having kids first grade, they understand that their opinions matter and decorum matters and expressing your opinions, uh, you know, nicely matters uh, and sharing your cookies matters and playing by the rules. But then also when you're, when you get recess and you go outside, being outside matters, you're learning uh, to be a citizen of two different communities. One is a political community. One is citizenship in nature. And those are flip sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Both of those start, have to start early on. Mm -hmm. And then how do we structure that? The biggest problem in American democracy is fossil fuel money. It's corrupted the process for a century. So, Everything we do to pull out of the fossil fuel-powered world can be used to promote democracy. Uh, Denise Fairchild, a uh, uh, friend and a uh, founder of something called Emerald Cities. Should be a good interview for you, by the way. Uh, Denise uh, has been helping to start community solar utilities owned by the community. Bob. You, you think about this instead of getting your your electrons from some giant utility and paying through the nose it's all you know corrupted and all that kind of stuff you're getting it from a local utility so you're getting electrons from the utility and you're also getting a paycheck because you own that utility yeah and so community-owned utilities and the same is true with local gardens when i lived in london for a time there was i forgot where it was down on the uh, thames river there was a local community garden a uh, huge operation i'll have to stop and think for the about the name of it but that's the kind of enterprise that we need to, to displace agribusiness. And there are a lot of laws that have to change, but we can begin the design process, designing a, uh, that entropic flow of materials from wells, mines, forests, and farms. Start from sunlight, uh, power this thing by sunlight, and begin to rethink how that entropic flow works. And um, this is out of context now, but back to that pipeline. We measure gross national product by two things, the volume of stuff going through that pipeline and the speed at which it goes through the pipeline. So from ordered matter to disordered matter and carbon in the atmosphere, waste dumps and plastic in the oceans, that's all good. I mean, yeah. by, by the standard model. So begin to rethink this the way Kate Rayworth, Lawrence and Herman Daly and Georgescu Rudd and so forth. That entropic flow needs to be balanced so that what comes in goes out, but what comes in is meant to replace only what goes out. Okay. So you're, you're replacing what wears out. So, uh, the sweater I'm wearing here wears out. Okay. It all used for rags and so forth. Now I buy one to replace it, no. but I don't buy four. And, uh, at, at any rate, th this is saying in answer to your question, uh, what kind of democracy would work? It would work with major changes that start with things like education. Uh, putting limits on television, on the, on the capacity of some to manipulate the opinions and attitudes and lives of others. Uh, it would require changing the way we think about people in the political environment. It would require changing the way they supply, they're supplied to food, energy, materials, water, so forth, making them not quite as good consumers, but a whole lot better citizens. I was interviewing uh, Jason Hickel last week on degrowth um scholarship yeah, yeah. and um he 
presented different models that show that, you know, we can stay within planetary boundaries and we can support 10 billion people and we can also lift 60% of people out of um, poverty around the world by implementing a series of policies simultaneously. And that's the key thing, right. the simultaneous part. Because if you only... Um, you know, if you only think about climate change without tackling the the bullshit problem of the free market, then you get nonsense like the green economy, which is just the continued commodification of nature. Right. Or if you um, don't think about uh, the materials problem, then you get everybody trying to dramatic, you know, shift towards renewables as quickly as possible without understanding right. that building renewables also takes fossil fuels and da 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 da. Like we need to decrease consumption. And the thing is, it's that. We are in this um, situation now where it's gotten so bad, we do need to be able to implement multiple things. It's the simultaneous part that can only lead right. to actually achieving a vision where we come through this without half of the world being killed off, essentially, and huge losses in biodiversity that we're already seeing every day. In what you're saying as well, I mean, how do we press go on all those buttons at the same time? given the situation that we are currently in and given the time frame because if we had two generations yeah. worth of time if we could educate everybody on how to be a better citizen mm -hmm. and also reprogram them to understand that you know losing your free market or not not allowing fox news on television is not the loss of any notion of freedom it's actually yeah. the construction yeah. of, of a better civilization but we just we just we don't have that time how what what kind of things do we need to prioritize and how do we yeah well you're, you're asking great questions uh and let me leave degrowth or stacy to come aside for just a moment um there's a cartoon in the american scientist which is a famous scientific journal here years back an old cartoon and there are these two guys standing at a blackboard and there's an equation on the blackboard and has X in brackets and then Y in brackets and so forth. And then in brackets, then a miracle occurs and then equals, you know, something. <laughs> and the caption below is one of the scientists uh, looks at it and says, I think you need to be more specific in step three here. And uh, I think a lot of thought about the future does have that. Then a miracle occurs. Hmm. I think the, uh, I would have to be quick to add, I think, yeah, we probably do need a couple of miracles. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I count Greta Thunberg as a miracle mm -hmm. in part, and people like you and, the, you know, the, the rising army. But if I stop and look back and say, how many people on this planet want to breathe dirty air? Nobody. Nobody. Drink dirty water? Nobody. Have nuclear weapons in nuclear war? Nobody. Uh, have uh, oil politics determine or oil money determine our politics? Nobody. So the point there is there, in fact, is a lot more of us than there is of them. The difficulty we have is that the big us is fairly lukewarm and all that. The small them is very intense, that intense minority. And that's how coup vitas occur. That's how revolutions happen. It's that intense minority. In the American case right now, it's uh, 20 or 30 percent of the, the voter, the electorate or folks out there are all stirred up, uh, you know, by Donald Trump and Fox News and Sean Hannity and so forth. Um, that That's that's one issue. The second issue is. Uh, we, we need a strategy, which is what uh, everybody's talking about. What's the right strategy? Now, you and I are scotch 
descendants and our ancestors charged well-defended stone walls wearing funny little skirts and got their butts kicked. <laughs> and uh, Not every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's the, what's the score now in the fourth quarter? <laughs> you know, uh, so, so the question is, how do we begin to think about what the, the great uh, British uh, military th uh, theoretician Basil Littlehart talked about indirect strategies. So you find the little thing over here that changes a whole lot of stuff over here, the minimum effort to the maximum effect. Mm -hmm. And uh, the uh, part of that is, is simply the vision. And Jason's point about having a vision of a world that actually works it is great. The key to that world is we, we're going to have to change how we collectively make decisions. And when the, the neoliberal world that Kate Rayworth writes against and uh, Jason writes against um, uh, took off uh, with a meeting of Mount, Mount Pelerin Society formed in Switzerland in 1947 or 48. Mm -hmm. That was all these people getting around saying the market can solve everything. They were reacting, overreacting to a world of fascism and communism. They just ended World War II and oh, we can't get to that again. And so if, if only markets control everything, then all will be well. So Milton Friedman and all these people uh, joined Friedrich Hayek and so forth. Yeah. And they won the day. They had a strategy. They took over departments of economics and law schools. And pretty soon you had Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher. And Reagan was famously said, you know, the, the scariest words in the English language are, I'm here from the government, I'm here to help you, or something to that effect. Right. And Maggie Thatcher uh, famously said that, uh, you know, there's no such thing as society. We're all just fragmented. We're individual atoms. Well, that's the, that's the world of Edward Bernays. If we're atomized, then consumption plays a very large psychological role in our lives that community activities no longer play. Right. And then all of a sudden, it's competition for everything. And so uh, when you get into <clears throat> literature, this uh, Michael Pogliani, uh, probably Carl Pogliani, his brother, wrote The Great Transformation, and that is bedrock economics. It's still in print. As P-O-L-A-N-Y-I, his brother was a very famous chemist, but they were two brilliant uh, people. But The Great Transformation is about this. Uh, he wrote before... That was published in 1944. The first Mount Pelerin meeting was, I forgot, 1947 or 48. So they were of the same era. But Pagliani was saying, if the market determines everything, you're going to have hell to pay. Mm. And the disintegration of society is the ultimate price you have for this illiberal or neoliberal economy that we now have, where money just rules. And, oh, you got to get government out of there. Well, you get government out, get, get government off our backs, as we like to say in America. What's still on your back? Corporations. And there's not much difference between a rise in price and a rise in tax. It both comes out of your pocketbook. And, but the problem is you can, you can change government theoretically in a democratic society. You really can't change corporations. They're a law unto themselves. And in American society, we gave corporations uh, the legal rights of persons, starting with a uh, Supreme Court decision in, oh, 1878, I think it was. Uh, the Clara County... Uh, Pacific Railroad decision, which said that corporations are just legal persons. Well, you and I are persons. Mm. So we can be in one place at one time. Electronically, we can be on things like this, but you physically there, I'm physically here. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you, you're going to die at some point. Uh, you have limited assets, uh, so forth and so on. Corporations are none of these things. Corporations don't die. They're just pots of capital looking for the highest rate of return. Yeah. Now they're given rights of person. What, what does that mean? Well, it means uh, all the rights that we embed in the uh, the Bill of Rights, freedom of speech. Okay, that means they can lie to the public. Well, that's Edward Bernays. You, you just gave carte blanche to, and then you make uh, uh, money in politics a form of free speech. Now you got all this dark money flowing into American politics and it's corrupting. Jane Mayer, by the way, who wrote the book Dark Money, would be an interesting interview. Mm. Uh, she just did a, a long article in uh, The New Yorker on uh, Jenny Thomas, uh, the wife of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And it's a kind of a chilling article, but it's it's online. You can you can download the article. Right. But I'm getting way ahead or behind or above or beyond the story. But there, there's a complex back on your 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 point. Uh, how do we make this urgent? I don't see any way to make it urgent unless citizens get involved and support better people. Uh, so the citizens of Colorado, uh, one of our hubs, have got to rise up uh, and say, you cannot threaten violence against political workers or political people of any kind. Mm-hmm. You can't do it. And make, make it legally uh, create a penalty for it. If, if you do threaten uh, Jenna Griswold, the Secretary of State, you're going to do jail time. Yeah. Have a nice day. Yeah. And then enforce this stuff. I mean, it doesn't work without without laws. And uh, it doesn't work without people who who see themselves like those uh, citizens who uh, listen to Lincoln and Douglas. Some of those people uh, believed what they were hearing so much that they fought for it and died for it. That's citizenship. It means you, you, can, you can suffer for it. And we need a generation of people who are willing to risk suffering. Mm-hmm. We need people like, uh, you know, mentioned Greta Thunberg, but there are literally across the country, uh, hundreds of thousands or across the world, hundreds of thousands of people that fit that category, millions likely. Yeah. Yeah. There seems to be a kind of um, entitlement in uh, modern Western citizenship, which is um, like the, an inalienable right to, to exist. And therefore, you know, don't no. do anything. If you do something bad, if you break the law, then, you know, you can do jail time or whatever or get fined, yeah. depending on which class you exist. But nothing is taught about how to be a good, like an active citizen. It seems to be an extremely passive thing now where just every four or five years, people go on the telly and they yell things at each other. Um, and you have to make a choice from people that you yeah. don't feel represent you. Um, and it seems to me that there needs to be... a teachings in the in active participation and it makes me think of ecological systems and when um ecological systems are systems within systems within systems of um biodiversity and organisms yeah yeah, coexisting together in order to make a greater whole we seem to have lost that in that fragmentation of society and that to me is what when you want to teach civics it's not just about suppose yeah it's not just about critical thinking it's also about action and earning your right to be a citizen that, that's a really good point. I, I think that we've we've disintegrated as a society, and there are lots of reasons for that. I grew up in a little town in Pennsylvania where, town of twenty two hundred, it had weekly rail service to Pittsburgh. It had two hardware stores, two grocery stores, a uh, two car dealerships, um, a um, drugstore. 
couple of coffee shops, restaurant, movie theater, town of 2200. Most everything I described is gone. And what happened was we built a society around this word efficiency. It was much more efficient to really get in a car, burn fossil fuels that came from Saudi Arabia, drive to a car, help change the climate, load up their car with lots of stuff they didn't need, while local merchants uh, perished. So we, we built communities uh, virtually everywhere on, on that American model of quote efficiency. And it was the least efficient way we could have done it. I mean, it, uh, speed is not everything. Yeah. Yeah. But your point, you said it really well. And I, I don't think there's any quick fix. I think we've got, you know, it took us a century and a half or more to, if you, if you date the start of our ills to, I don't know, Adam Smith, that's an unfair charge against Adam Smith, but the Scotsman, we shouldn't mention him in that context. <laughs> but yeah, you know, if you, if you date it from the start of, uh, uh, the steam engine, let's say we've been at this for what is nearly two centuries. And we're not going to get out of it quickly, yeah. but there are certain things that have to happen quickly. We have to begin to make this transition to a, a solar-powered, hyper-efficient world. And efficiency doesn't get often mentioned here. I asked the, you know, I took my class down to uh, Carnegie Mellon as part of a, my my ecological design class, and uh, just offhandedly, I asked a friend there who's a physicist. He said, "If we if we operated the American economy." as efficiently as technology would permit, how much energy would we use? What do you thought for a minute? Eh, maybe a third of what we now use. And that was five or six years ago. So efficiency could lower the amount of energy we use dramatically. Better design could lower it dramatically, making mm -hmm. communities walkable and bikeable and so forth, where you don't need to get in a car to go, go someplace. Mm -hmm. um, but some of that is going to, take a long time, but we do have in, in this democracy initiative, there, there is a, an ecological design component to it. So we're talking about how, you know, I mentioned the difference between say Copenhagen and uh, Los Angeles, but uh, begin to rethink how we provision ourselves. And that, that, that says democracy and entropy, you know, the management of that whole entropic flow, mm -hmm. they, they're related. Mm -hmm. And if it's, if you're emphasizing speed and volume, it's going to be hard to be a democracy. Mm, yeah. Good point. If you're emphasizing village economics, uh, smaller scale economics. And, and this is, uh, for years I've taught at Schumacher College out in Devon with uh, people like Seton Baxter from Aberdeen University, one of the great design minds uh, uh, in the UK and uh, people like Jonathan Port and Satish Kumar and so forth. Uh, the whole emphasis at Schumacher College that's on the Dartington estate has been over the years, this rebuilding local capacity. And that includes art and music and uh, yeah. gardening and horticulture and, you know, restoring that, that life that was broken up by the rush into modernity. I'm off on a uh, tangent, but for listening so carefully, you get three credit hours at uh, Arizona State University. <laughs> I'm thinking, I wish I'd studied all this stuff. Not too late. Uh, I think we're all learning, and I, the, um, the 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 real battle is going to be fought. When people ask, the, "What do I think the greatest limit is?" It's our imagination, mm -hmm. our sense of ecological imagination, possibilities. And still, the world world is still rich in possibilities. We haven't exhausted our potential, and so, what I think 
needs to happen is kind of the equivalent of getting off autopilot mm -hmm. and taking control again. Yeah. And the essence of democracy is to have faith in what we, the people, can be. Yeah. I mean, engaging our prefrontal cortex is, is a must, I think. Um, and yet there's also a sense of, again, for imagination, it requires a totality, a use of the totality of the brain that I don't think we often do use because in, in, in how we systemize things as well, whether it's an in industry, whether it's in career, whether it's in education, it's mm -hmm. always breaking things down into smaller and smaller pieces. But the thing that I'm really, really sort of obsessed with thinking about at the moment is the role of creativity in all of this because of the crisis of imagine that we yeah. face. Yeah. Um, and when thinking about ecology or politics or whatever, like ultimately the, 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 we seem to be in a position where it's either, well, things are either going to stay the same, i.e. get worse, and we're going to slip into a very dangerous form of society, which will see billions around the world lose access to food, mm -hmm. water, security. Um, or there's this, you know, there's the techno-optimist vision, there's um, the more realistic vision. and But ultimately, it seems to me that without also, and I'm now tangenting, without making space in education specifically for like for art for music for literature for nurturing that creativity yeah. which is i mean creativity is also the source of of collaboration and of the most of the great progress that's been made um by human society you know somebody has an idea and then 10 other people know how to implement it essentially like to me it goes beyond just politics and ecology as well and in seeing it as mm -hmm. part of that bigger picture like the capacity that we have for imagination is incredible and if we don't start a utilizing it when when in positions of power to do so and b teaching that as well and nurturing that in young people alongside the more rational processes yeah then it because we need the answer is that you know it's behind the veil <laughs> still yeah yeah <laughs> You said that really well, uh, and I, I could not agree more. And that, that is an untapped resource. The, the idea that maybe to get through this uh, uh, period of time, this long emergency, as that's uh, been described, uh, maybe what we really need is to tap into the creativity of uh, nearly 8 billion people. And uh, I remember being on a foundation uh, in San Francisco and being, um, you got time for one quick story? Yeah. So we're on this foundation board and we were approached by a school in Oakland that wanted to build a uh, school garden, but they were surrounded by parking lots. So they had to take out the asphalt and so forth. And so we gave them a little grant. And uh, by Jimmy, they did. They took out the asphalt. And these were kids, uh, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, you know, roughly give or take 10 years of age. And they took out the asphalt. Uh, they planted a garden. And the garden produced food for the local cafeteria. They sold the uh, their surplus to Chez Panisse uh, in Berkeley, one of the elite restaurants in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Uh, and uh, we had these kids come in and uh, after it was all done and they had a successful garden and it became the kind of the prototype for California uh, school gardens. And so uh, I asked one of the kids uh, there who was by that time, I don't know, 13 or 14 years of age, I said, well, what did you learn from this experience? The kid looked at me like I was an idiot. He said, well, 
we learned that asphalt isn't forever. <laughs> yep. That capsulized the whole thing. Imagination. <laughs> we learned that we are not determined by the asphalt or the problems we've had in the past. And some, some ways we are sometimes, but that you couldn't have had a professional writer come up with a better answer. <laughs> yeah. And I felt like just saying, Hey uh, kid, get out of here. You know, that that's all right. You got your PhD. Just <laughs> yeah. go, go and do good. <laughs> but that that's, I mean, that, that's just kind of your point. Well, yeah. And to me, it really, really highlights the difference between like prefrontal cortex thinking and critical thinking, you know, cause your prefrontal yeah. cortex doesn't even finish developing until you're 25. So for everybody that we want to teach critical thinking to, I mean, ultimately, like we all need to be in higher education until we're 25 to get like the biggest impact um, or really be in education forever. But that's a whole other tangent. But like the creativity, the fundamental potentiality that is revealed yeah. in children when they perceive the world through what, however it is through their own individuality or through their own experiences, which are so particular and limited, like the fountain of possibility that comes from the way that they put words together, they put images together, that they understand the things that are happening around them. And then mm -hmm. gradually that kind of, you know, we get socialized, we get institutionalized. Yes. Sometimes that's really important. If, you know, if we are nations that want to coexist, there has to be some socialization. But to lose that very thing and then think that we can purely replace it with a sort of rational thought process and for everything to still work out fine. I mean, that's where your bog standard economics came from and it's doing nothing to help in this situation. So everybody has, I mean, you hear stories, especially like Scotland's such an interesting country I find because it's like, it's, it's so fundamentally working class and you, you hear know. stories of how young kids in like poor neighborhoods essentially come up with these like outrageously creative um, solutions, whether it's, you know, they want to get beer on a Saturday night or whether it's they, they want to make a little bit of extra money or they, yeah, the capacity that we all have to yeah. problem solve is yeah. how humanity has gotten to this stage. And so to think that we can't think our way out of it, it just means that we're not investing in the right parts of humanity, surely. People, you know, if you ask a little kid, somebody wants, this is not original, somebody wants to ask little kids age, you know, in first grade, uh, can you sing? Every, all hands go up. Yes, I, yeah. of course I can sing. By the time I get to be 12, you ask, can you sing? No hands go up. And what's happened in the meantime is you, you've been beaten out of you that you have a voice and you can sing and you can be, you know, sing beautiful songs and so forth. Um, one of the things that we did on the, if you got time for one more story, we did the, uh, uh, when I first came to Oberlin, the environmental studies program I was sharing did not have a building, uh, facilities. So my babes, my office is in the basement with every time it rained, water would seep in. So I was in an emergency wetland in the basement <laughs> of this building. And, um, so the, the uh, college gave me permission to build an environmental studies center. And I thought, well, hey, this is a great time to rebuild a building. Let's get students involved. So it's part of the educational experience. So the, the rule of thumb for all the architects and engineers, there were 14 firms that we eventually worked on this. Um, uh, the rule of thumb was they had to work with Oberlin students, uh, wild and crazy. And you know, they're kids like you described. Um, so they part, they were part of the design team and we came to a point, they wanted a pond on the site and the college did not want a pond because they thought somebody would drown in the pond or the kids would skinny dip in the pond and it'd be an embarrassment to the college and so forth. And the kids in response said, well, you know, if that's your fear, our nightmare is that you, the administration will come and skinny dip in our pond. 
And so this wasn't all high level stuff. So the attorney, uh, for the college, uh, weighed in on this and I took it to the, my students and I said, what do you want to do about it? You want a pawn? I want you to have a pawn. Uh, they think it's going to be a liability. So what do you want to do? And the answer, the winning answer was we'll stock it with piranha. And so <laughs> I sent that to the attorney and, uh, the attorney wrote back after a while and said, okay, or you can have your pawn, but it's not because piranha, uh, deter. It's because they destroy the evidence on which lawsuits are based. <laughs> so, uh, the, the kids did the, the building program, uh, and the way they, they wanted a building, this is a very rainy part of Ohio. So we get lake effect, cloudy conditions. We're close to Lake Erie. And, uh, so they wanted the building to be entirely solar powered. And at the first, uh, and, and the whole, the whole design, uh, strategy was to cause no ugliness, human or ecological somewhere else, or at some later time. And you go, you know where you live? I mean, this is going to be a building mm. and that, that's like, uh, always be truthful, always, you know, be fair and just, it's a go you strive for, you never quite get there, but you always have to strive for it. So they, they did and the building, uh, became the first entirely solar powered building on a U.S. college campus, uh, a long time ago. Wow. And it's been operated ever since. It became the first zero discharge. You flush a toilet and the water goes into an indoor wetland that processes all the wastewater. That's been working for uh, 20 years also. Yeah. But the, 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 the point here is that the creativity of students in the design press, process working with professional designers, engineers, landscapers, and so forth was phenomenal. And the point there is uh, exactly your point. Let, let's give them opportunities to tap into uh, their own creativity while working with people they, they can admire these professional designers. So they, they graduate understanding, uh, that they, they are creative and having heroes and heroines on the other side that they can identify with. Yeah. But that, that's the way of I'll, send you an art, I'll send you yeah, an article. Please do. I would love to read that. I mean, collaboration is inherently, um, what's the word? Uh, it, it's a synthesis, right? Like you can't have everybody who is just a systems thinker. You can't have purely creative geniuses. You can't have, you know, everybody needs to fulfill a different role. And right now it just always seems to be that there's an end goal in mind. And because of the free market uh, economy that we live in, typically that goal is how do we do this as cheaply as possible rather than, okay, here's kind of the vision of what we want to achieve. How can we achieve right. it? Is there something in by doing the creative process as well, can we update the vision as we're thinking about it and as we're talking about it, which exactly. is something that you just rarely see exactly. happen. Yeah. David, I can speak to you all day. I am so enjoying this. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity to talk. Oh my God. Thank you for, for coming on Planet Critical. It's such, been such a pleasure speaking with you. Well, same here. Who would you, who would you like to platform? Is it Kate? Hey, Kate. Kate Rayworth would be really good. Uh, Denise Fairchild might be another one, hmm. African-American woman, Emerald City. You might, might look her up. And if you want an introduction to her, I can give you an introduction to, to her. That would be fantastic. All right. Brilliant. David, thank you so much. This is such a pleasure. And I can connect you with Donald Trump too, if that, if that would be it. That'd be, that'd be an interview. Seriously? No, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, my naive gullibility there. <laughs> that was a perverted sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would be, that would be a lot of fun to do. It'd be interesting. You would definitely uh, be in the global news 
Uh, yeah, for maybe all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Who's she platforming? <laughs> <laughs> well, Kate, Kate would be superb, and, and uh, you mm. could do that in, in your own time zone. So, great. Thank you. Thank you, David. Well, Rachel, thank, thank you so much. Good, good to meet you. Good to see you. Thanks for doing what you're doing. I really enjoyed the, the time with you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about David's work, I've put links over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you like this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, the best way to support the project is by choosing a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page where you'll find bonus videos of my thoughts on each interview. A huge, huge, huge thank you to the Planet Critical supporters who make this work possible every week. Thank you for allowing me to invest the time in having these amazing conversations and broadcast them to you all. Thank you everyone for listening. See you next week.